0: Song. Let's pray, Lord God. I pray that you would come and work in our hearts today, teach us from your Word. God, may we um, may we be empowered by it, by your power through your Holy Spirit. May we hear it, apply to our lives. May it make a difference in our life, Lord. It is not an easy passage to preach, and Lord God, I pray that you would help me. And give me strength and energy and clarity by your spirit, uh, to teach your word, and God may it bear fruit in our lives, Lord, we need you today. Um, a lot of distractions I have no doubt in the room, and burdens and struggles and fears and doubts. and God, I pray, Lord, that you would draw near to your people. And uh, may we hear from you. Show us Christ. Remind us of the good news of the gospel. It's your name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think I'm on. Can y'all hear me? Am I on? Okay. If you are an exposition, by the way, do you not love the pulpit? I love the pulpit. I built it. Um, That is... That would never happen. I'm one of the few people at Spring Hill School who was asked to never take another woodshop class. So, um, But uh, it looks great. So happy with the work. Um, we have so much going on, so much more to be done. Uh, looks like, as far as we know, everything will be ready to go for Easter, which has been our target. Chairs will be delivered in a couple of weeks. Uh, just encourage you to continue to give toward that. Uh, as we uh, move through a, a remodel of this room, uh, doors are coming soon uh, for those doors back there and um, looking really good. We'll have carpet on the stage. Uh, also, it looks great. Uh, we're building a, a, a sound booth in the back, um, so it's going to be great. I'm uh, very happy to see this room turned into a, a worship place, a worship center. Um, no buildings are not... Uh, of high importance compared to everything else, uh, but the reality is, it's something that we do culturally as a as a country. We meet in churches, and uh, I look forward to seeing all the great things that are going to happen here in this room. Uh, not maybe even long after I'm gone. Uh, so, uh, which hopefully will be when I'm about ninety. You'll have to literally take me out of the pulpit. Uh, that's my goal. Anyway, um, if we preach this long through the Corinthians again, you may not. You may take me out pretty quickly uh, because. <laughs> Uh, We're going to tackle 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to do the entire chapter today. Uh, I know there's a lot there, uh, and so I'm well aware of that. Uh, I hope to get you out before 2. And uh, we, uh, I'm not kidding. Uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, If you are an expositional preacher and you work your way through books of the Bible, um, this is one of the chapters you'd like to skip. Not necessarily because it's Greatly controversial, uh, just because it's very um, difficult to preach without understanding the context and and the historical parts of this chapter. So I'm going to spend a great deal of time just trying to frame this up for you, and then we're going to work through the text uh, fairly rapidly. Uh, so I guess the best way for me to start would would be for um, for you to think about the first time you heard the word email or when you heard people talk about getting online uh, or, as I've told stories before, when my kids were really small and they would say things, well, why didn't you and mom just, or why didn't you just call on your cell phone or why didn't you just look up the Google of it? And I'm like, no, that stuff existed. And if you go just 30 years ago, much of the technology that we rely on relentlessly today did not exist. And so the words email and, and FaceTime and text and Google and none of those words would have meant anything to you back then. It was brand new. And in some ways, that is how these believers in Corinth felt with their newfound faith, this new religion called Christianity. There was so much to learn and so many questions. So to truly grasp this passage, you must understand the basic historical setting of the letter. And I would argue uh, that's the case for any uh, of the books of the Bible. You need to understand the historical setting. But let's just work through. We've said some of this already, uh, but let's go back through it briefly. Sexual immorality was rampant in the Greco-Roman idol-worshiping world. It was a hyper-sexualized one in which men had complete freedom uh, to do just about anything they wanted to do, uh, and women uh, were treated as property. There was no Christian worldview, no Christian DNA existed in the culture like we have grown up. Whether or not you're even a believer, you could be a devout atheist in America, it is impossible to grow up in this country without some kind of influence of Christianity. There was none of that in Corinth. No vacation Bible schools, no youth camps, no Bible bookstores. We don't really have those much anymore anyway, uh, but no Christian bookstores or no uh, seminars to go to. Uh, this was a foreign concept to the Corinthians who had just come to know Christ. We also know in the mid 50s, about when this book would have been, or this letter would have been being read, uh, there was a severe Mediterranean. Famine. Uh, now, famines are something we, well, we think when they don't have enough pizza on the buffet, we're famined. <laughs> but that's not how a famine in biblical times was way worse than the coronavirus. <laughs> it means you did not eat, you died. Famines were severe. We know there was a, a, a famine in the Mediterranean at this time. Um, and so, if you can just imagine for us to think back to the Great Depression. Uh, and some of the things that happened for families and some of the great difficulties. uh, You can expound on that um, or, you know, you can make that a lot worse and you would have at least a little bit of a concept of a famine uh, in um, the first century world. Um, Also, you need to remember that the second coming of Christ uh, was expected at any moment. That's what they believed. Uh, We believe that as well. And as far as time is concerned... um, any moment is true. It could happen at any moment. And they definitely believed uh, that Christ was returning uh, very quickly. Um, and so that, you need to remember that as you look at this text and understand some of the things that are going to be happening. And then these lessons on marriage. Many of your Bibles will have principles of marriage or directions on marriage. Uh, obviously, This had not been very well taught yet, despite the fact that Paul had spent 18 months with them. You can imagine all the things that you've learned, having grown up in church, and all the things that you didn't know that you didn't know, and all the things that you've learned just recently that was always there. Paul had 18 months with them, and then he left. And there were Tons of questions, implications that occurred years ago. I was uh, at a, a missions banquet with Mike Curry, one of the missionaries we support, and he was giving us an update. Uh, and uh, he made the con- uh, the comment about some of the difficulties they were facing in some of these tribes, where people were coming to know Christ. And he said, "You know, the Bible answers, and you know, the quick Sunday school answers don't always work." And somebody said, "Well, give us one." And he said, "Well, we we had a gentleman uh, come to know Christ recently, and one of our uh, in one of the uh, villages that we've been preaching in. And we had a Bible Q&A um, afterwards. And this man said, I've got seven wives. Which one do I keep? And I raised my hand. I said, I know the answer to that. He said, what is it? I said, the best looking one. <laughs> the girls laughed somewhat. <laughs> the men were careful. <laughs> but there's a real difficulty there. What, what do you do here? Imagine... Corinth, coming out of a pagan, hypersexualized, completely different world with no Christian DNA. Imagine the hundreds of questions you would have, and it's no, diff- no different here. Now, you should also know the Holy Spirit inspired author is, of course, the Apostle Paul, um, probably married at one time himself, although that is a matter of debate. Um, many think he was because of uh, the implications of Acts chapter 26, which seems to indicate he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which means he was more than likely married. If he was a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, he cast a vote. If you go back to Acts 26, it seems to make it look like that he might have been a member of the Sanhedrin. And so if he was married, we have a good question. What happened to his wife? Because doesn't he's not married now, and that's something that we should think about. Well, one, His wife could have died, Uh, that's a possibility. Uh, Or two, his wife could have abandoned him after his conversion. Remember, Saul's conversion to Christianity and became Paul was a controversial conversion. He was a leader among the religion, among the Jewish religion, the Judaism. He was a leader. He was uh, well-respected. He was powerful. And it could be very well argued that his wife, when he converted, decided to not take the Christian journey with him. And so, um, but at the end of the day, historians and theologians are divided. I personally, if you want to if I can put all my cards on the table, I think she bailed on them. That's what I think uh, personally. I have nothing to go on that other than I think, I don't, I think that uh, when he converted, I think she decided not to go with him and I just think that's what happened. But uh, I think what you do need, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you also need to think about if Paul wasn't married or had been married or wasn't married anymore, wherever you land, what was his overall view of marriage? Because if you read just 1 Corinthians seven alone, without reading the rest of his writings, you might have um, some misunderstandings about what he thought about marriage. Well, you heard it in Ephesians chapter five when he wrote what he said about marriage. That his view of marriage was very high. This, after all, it's a picture of the gospel. The love for a husband, for our love for, of a husband for his wife, should be as high as Christ's love for the church. That's a big deal. Pretty strong endorsement of marriage. So, his comments in 1 Corinthians 7 cannot be seen as a knock on getting married because you must keep all the writings of the Bible, especially those of the same author, in view when you interpret a text. So, we have all these Corinthians asking, I'm a new believer. Do I now get married? Should I get married? Can I get married? Should I get a divorce from whom I'm married to? Should I stop having sex with my wife? It's a question that was in there. Should I stay a slave? Or if I'm free in Christ, should I not get my freedom? My spouse isn't a believer. Should I abandon them? Should I leave them? We have, our minds are immediately saturated with Bible answers. They had none. And this letter comes to Paul and says, help us understand what we should do. I'll also give you three additional pieces of information that I think you need to understand. Now, with regards to the issues you wrote about, you'll see that in this text twice, Uh, Paul is answering questions, you've got to remember this, from a letter that the Corinthians had sent him. We don't have that letter, but he's answering those questions, so you'll see that when when we read through this text. Also, he talks about the impending crisis. I think that is most likely not referring to the second coming of Christ. That's my opinion. Some think that. I think based in the context that he is referring to the famine. And I think in verse 29, you'll see where he talks about the time is short. Once again, uh, when you hear that phrase, when you hear that concept in 1 Corinthians 7, once again, uh, they are looking for the return of Christ at any moment. So with all that historical framework in place, Uh, and with you hopefully understanding or at least beginning to wrap your mind um, around the mindset of these first century believers in Corinth, let's tackle this text and find out what God has for us today in it. Verse 1. Now, with regard to the issues you wrote about, it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. That's a quote. Clearly, I believe he's quoting something that they asked, something they said to him in the letter. But because of immoralities, each man should have relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. That would have been shocking, by the way, to that world. Each should have sex with their, only their marital, their spouse, only in the marriage. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife and likewise a, hu- a wife to her husband. It is not the wife who has rights to her own body, but the husband, which they would have said, Amen. They would have agreed with that. That was what they already thought, that a wife was viewed as nothing more than property. But then he continued. In the same way, it is not the husband who has rights to his own body, but the wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual agreement for a specific time or a specified time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then resume your relationship so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul references a statement by the Corinthians in their letter about it's good, right, Paul? It's good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. But that's good, right? And Paul's going to address that. Clearly, they had arrived at that conclusion, uh, most likely based on his previous teachings when he was in Corinth, um, maybe by the power of the Holy Spirit in reference to the, the sexual immorality that was rampant among them. Um, But Paul wants to frame that understanding with great detail. So he says, yes, you should not be touching women sexually, but you should be having sex with your own wife. Now listen, I I recognize the difficulty of this text and the age group that we have in here, but it's in the scripture and we're going to work through the scripture. Amen? That's what we're going to do. It's confusing to me why we avoid these topics in the church. I said this last week. (laughs) I had a A woman told me once, I don't want you to teach any of that stuff to any of my students, Uh, my kids. uh, I don't want them to know about that stuff. I said, well, they have access to the Internet. My kids don't. Well, their friends do. (laughs) I can assure you uh, that if you don't teach them and we don't teach them from the Scripture, they're going to find out the world's definition of it, which is wrong. And so I think the church should not treat sex, which is created by our God, created by our God, we should not treat that as taboo. Instead, we should treat it as a holy, wonderful thing in the context of marriage. So we're going to tackle this text, and I'll be as careful as I can be. But he says, you should have sex with your own wife and men, with men, I mean, if you're, if you're married, you have sex with your own wife. If you're a woman, you should have sex with your husband. Here's the deal. Your bodies belong to each other. Now, that would have elevated women in that society unlike they had ever been elevated before. A woman who had previously been property has now, because of the gospel, been told that her husband also belongs to her. That would have been life-changing in this culture. Each person's body in a marriage belongs to their spouse. And there is a sexual responsibility on both spouses towards each other and towards each other alone. Enjoying sex. In 1 Corinthians 7, we see this enjoying sex within the marriage is right, necessary, and expected for believers. One amen in the entire room. Oh, we need a marriage seminar. It is right, it is necessary, and it is expected within the confines of a Christian marriage. Should be. In fact, we see in this text, that that truth helps stop, helps stop the temptation of the surrounding culture. So don't withhold sex, Paul says, from each other in the marriage, unless it is an agreed upon short time of focus on prayer, uh, most likely fasting as well. Some translations add fasting because those two were commonly done together. Um, And so, but be careful how long you stay apart sexually, lest you be tempted it's a text it's in the bible it's in the scripture a teaching to these new believers in Corinth with regards to marriage women I have no doubt when this letter was being read was like "Uh uh-huh you belong to me (laughs) so we understand how that feels now right men (laughs) That would have been so earth-shattering for this group of believers, these women believers who have been treated as substandard to suddenly be elevated this way. Whenever you hear people talk about how Christianity makes women weak, have no concept of the history of Christianity and what it has actually done for women. Christianity holds women high, very high. Verse 8. Or verse six, I said this as a concession and not as command. I wish that everyone was as I am, meaning single, but each has his own gift from God, one this way and another that. Now, Paul is not arguing explicitly for staying single. He is making the case, I believe, that some have the gift or the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to stay single, a calling in their life to be single. Um, And then in verse eight, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is best for them to remain as I am, but if they do not have self-control, let them get married, for it is better to marry than to burn with sexual desire. So we have the unmarried, who are the virgins, and we have the widows, those who have obviously lost their spouses. And Paul is saying it is still best to stay single. And there are reasons that he will expound on later on in chapter 7. But right off the bat, he gets to the objections that many would have, and I personally had growing up, right? And most of you had. And that is, you burn with that desire. That's real. That's a real desire created by God in us. There's a real desire for that. So, hormones are real. Sexual desire is real. And to keep it, as I said, a taboo topic, something the church doesn't address, has never worked out well for the church. It is a desire that exists. Paul doesn't avoid this topic. Paul doesn't say in chapter 7, regarding the relationships of sex and a marriage, well, we're not going to talk about that. He doesn't say that. He addresses it head on. And he says these desires are real, and so you should stay single. And he's going to explain why later, why, why he thinks being single is a better way to live life. But then he says, but if you burn with desire, then you should marriage, marry. And so Paul addresses it quickly, doesn't, get a, doesn't avoid it. He says, if you do not have self-control, then you should get married. So that's a quick story or quick truth about this story of how we deal with sex in our culture when it comes to those of us who burn with passion. We clearly would like to get married to have sex. True. It's a true statement. It's in the Bible. So, um, So Paul addresses it quickly, doesn't avoid it, says it very quickly, and he's going to make the case later for why that should stay married. Now, in verse 10, he says, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife should not divorce a husband, but if she does, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband should not divorce his wife. Now, Paul now references a teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ regarding marriage and divorce. Now, Our church tackled this very difficult subject in our elder teachings when it came to what it means to be a husband of but one wife. I have no desire to avoid it again today other than for the length of time. But if you would, if that's something that you want to know more about, I would encourage you to go to our podcast, find that sermon. We spent an entire sermon on that one particular topic Plain and simple, nothing else. We just tackled that one topic, and I would advise you to go to that uh, and review it. Having said that, let me say this. The Bible holds marriage high, and the church should too. The Bible holds marriage high, and the church should too. This is not something to be entered into lightly. It is a weighty thing for you, to get married and divorce should be rare and only I believe in certain circumstances and only I believe after every attempt at reconciliation has been exhausted it is not a get out of jail free card to take that attitude to a marriage is to throw the covenant of marriage into the trash and to ignore the teachings of Paul on what it means as a picture of the gospel. does. You should take it very seriously. There's a weighty thing. Verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord... If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is happy to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is happy to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified because of the wife and the unbelieving wife because of her husband. Otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. But if an unbeliever wants a divorce, let it take place. In these circumstances, the brother or sister is not bound. God has called you in peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will bring your husband to salvation? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will bring your wife to salvation? Now, clearly, and I think you see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, there was probably concern among the Corinthian believers that if they are one flesh with an unbeliever, that they were somehow involved in sin. Paul made that same argument about being involved with a prostitute, maybe these Corinthians had a concept that if my spouse is not a professing Christian, that they worship idols, and yet I become one flesh with them, maybe I too have walked into sin, and so should I not just leave that person? And Paul says, listen, if they are willing to stay with you, you should stay with them. This is obviously now not indicating that an unbelieving spouse who is married to a believer is somehow saved just through that marriage. That's not what Paul's saying here. This is about influence. The reality is that strong marriages and strong families are powerful witnessing tools for the power of the gospel. Christians must be, must be different because they have the power through the Holy Spirit to live and behave differently. And he's saying that if you, as a believer, walk out the gospel faithfully in front of your unbelieving spouse, it is possible that they would come to know Christ but if they leave, if they say, I'm out of here, I don't want anything to do with this, I'm walking away, you should let them leave. Because you don't really know at the end of the day whether or not that's going to happen. Do you see how Paul is answering real questions by these new believers? He's answering difficult, and serious questions for a group of people who have not thought through this completely. Verse 17, Nevertheless, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each person, so he must live. I give this sort of direction to all the churches. Was anyone called after he had been circumcised? He should not try to undo his circumcision. Was anyone called who is uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Instead, keeping God's commandments is what counts. Let each one remain in the situation in life in which he was called. Were you called as a slave? Do not worry about it. But if indeed you are able to be free, make the most of the opportunity. For the one who was called in the Lord as a slave is a Lord's freed man." In the same way, the one who was called as a free person is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. In whatever situation someone was called, meaning rescued, meaning saved, brothers and sisters, let him remain in it with God. Um, Bible scholar and author F.F. Bruce says this about this passage. Paul's emphasis in this entire chapter, as is, is in the present passage, is his conviction that the most critical issue in human life and relations and institutions is the transformation of persons' lives by, God, by God's calling. External circumstances, slave, not a slave, external circumstances can neither take away nor add to this reality. The instruction to remain in the situation in which one is called to faith is a mythological principle, meaning where are you at? Wherever you're at, you you can stay there and worship and serve God in that spot. Whatever place in life you are in when God saves you, stay there and bear witness to Christ. Now, there are clearly exceptions, um, but often people come to Christ um, maybe from Not growing up in church, they come to Christ and and God just does amazing things for them. And their default position is, I want to be serious about the Lord, so I need to become a missionary. Or I need to be serious about the Lord, so I need to become a pastor. Or maybe, what did you want to be? Well, I wanted to be a lawyer. Well, you probably can't be a Christian. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Maybe you should be a lawyer and be godly. (laughs) Maybe you should be a doctor and be godly. Maybe you should be a welder and be godly. In other words, Paul's saying, whatever situation you're in right now, whatever it be, be there and live for Christ in that particular situation. Be light in a dark world because it is those who have known you when you were an unbeliever who will see the greatest difference in you as a believer. So live that way. Students, that should sound familiar. We discussed that this morning. Verse 25, with regard to the question about people who have never married, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my opinion as one shown mercy by the Lord to be trustworthy. Paul answers another question asked by the Corinthians. Well, Paul, what about those people who have never been married? Now, this is um, not a case where the Word is no longer inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul is not saying that because I'm giving my opinion um, that this is not inspired, that's not true. Paul is simply saying that Jesus did not teach on this specifically, or if he did, Paul is not aware of the teaching. However, Paul is going to make the case uh, more than once that he has apostolic authority uh, invested in him by Christ, meaning that this part of the letter is just as inspired, I believe, as the rest of the letter. He's just saying, this is what I believe. I don't have a teaching on this directly from Jesus But here's how I'm being led by the Spirit uh, to answer that question, which is how he's going to conclude chapter 7 as well. And he's going to now answer this question, what about the people who have never been married? Well, he already said in whatever situation you're in, you should stay in that situation. And he's going to carry that on with verse 26. Because of the impending crisis, which I believe is the famine, personally, Uh, Others think it might be uh, the return of Christ that they believe is impending. But because of the impending crisis, I think it is best for you to remain as you are. Now, if it's a famine, why would it be best for you to remain as you are? Well, if there's not enough food, it seems illogical, in my mind, to take on more responsibility and possibly have children that you cannot feed. And so I think this is my... Understanding this text that he's saying you should probably stay as you are. The one bound to a wife should not seek divorce. The one released from a wife should not seek marriage. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face difficult circumstances. Thank you. (laughs) I wrote that. I thought, how many amens will I get here? Those who marry will face difficult circumstances and I am trying to spare you such problems. I had someone say, don't talk about marriage that way because you make marriage look bad in the sight of God when the gospel holds it high. But don't ignore the reality because Paul doesn't ignore the reality. He says, listen, if you get married, you're going to have some issues. There's going to be things that you have to start dealing with that you do not have to deal with as a single person. I have a, um, a, a friend that is single, and I was talking to him one day. I said, well, why have you never married? And he went, be real quiet. Do you hear that noise? I went, what noise? I said, I don't hear anything. He said, exactly. <laughs> That's why I'm not married. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to amen that. <laughs> but the reality It's no longer about where you want to go eat. You now have to think about that. And it's no longer about where you want to live. You have to think about someone else. It's not about what movie you want to go. I mean, And this list goes on and on to the greatest, most difficult conversations we have. There is truth in what Paul is saying. If you choose to marry, it's wonderful. You should love her as Christ loves the church. Your bodies belong to each other. It's great. And there are also great difficulties that come with it. And he says, I am trying to spare you such problems. Verse 29, and I say this, brothers and sisters, the time is so short. So then, those, so then those who have wives should be as those who have none, those with tears like those not weeping, those who rejoice like those not rejoicing, those who buy like those without possessions, those who use the world as though they were not using it to the fool. For the present shape of this world is passing away. Now, if this impending crisis truly is a famine, then clearly taking on a wife and a family and other responsibility makes it harder. And if it was a famine, or if he is referring to that, there's no doubt they would have seen death and they would have seen how quickly the world can fade away and how quickly things that were important to you when you had a lot of food are not nearly important to you now that you don't have food. And so he's reminding them this world is quickly passing away. Now, what in the world does Paul mean by living like you don't have a wife? That sounds kind of dangerous to me, personally. Well, one commentator said it this way. Our individual lives on this earth are short and uncertain. We come and go very quickly from the earth. James speaks to that in James chapter 4. But we come and go very quickly from this earth in comparison to the long history of man and compared to the long eternal future after this life. Paul urged Believers to accept the permanence of their place in eternity with Christ and the temporary nature of everything on this side of that moment. Christ's return to earth may yet be some years away, but any of us might be faced with eternity at any moment. And with regards to marriage, your marriage is temporary. You will not be married in heaven. We know that. Scripture teaches that. They all end in death. And so no Christian should place their temporary commitment to their spouse above their eternal service to God. Now, don't hear what I did not say. Loving your wife as Christ loves the church is valuing the eternal perspective of a believer. And yet, it is possible to place your spouse on a pedestal above that of And Paul is reminding them this world is quickly passing away. So life is lived differently now for a believer. We live for something eternal and our emphasis is on what matters most. What, What is the most important thing to me? What matters now? What carries the most weight has been changed for these Corinthians because of the gospel. What used to be important to them is no longer what is important to them now because of Christ. And so they must live differently. For this world in its present form, including your marriage, is passing away. And a lot of that reality, Paul continues in verse 32, I want you to be free from concern. I want you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the things of this world and how to please his wife. And he is divided. An unmarried woman Or a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord to be holy both in body and in spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of the world and how to please her husband. I am saying this to you for your benefit, not to place a limitation on you, but so that without distraction you may give notable and constant service to the Lord. Paul is once again advocating for everyone staying single, just as he is in light of the fact that some... If not most, burn with sexual desire. He is just stating the obvious. If you get married, your attention and concerns and energies will be divided. Those who stay single can have a more singular focus. It is just truth, it's the reality, but one in which most of us cannot operate because it opens us up to sexual immorality. We don't have that control. And Paul's saying, it's great to be single. You have a singular focus. I'm single. It's great. But if you burn, go get married. It's not a sin to do that either. Now, it also, despite how strong Paul is advocating for being single, it doesn't mean you must be single in order to make an impact for the kingdom of God. How many of y'all remember the Apostle Peter? Married. Married also had a pretty big impact on the kingdom. So that's not the argument uh, for sure. Verse 36, If anyone thinks he is acting inappropriately toward his virgin, if she is past the bloom of youth and it seems necessary, he should do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. But the man who is firm in his commitment and is under no necessity but has control over his will and has decided in his own mind to keep his own virgin does well. So then, the one who marries his own virgin does well, but the one who does not does better. Paul now addresses engaged men and encourages them to go through with their marriage under the right circumstances. However, however, if the engaged man has his sexual desire under control and he decides to not marry, that is okay too. But if his sexual passion is strong to the point of it being difficult to control, then he should marry her. And then verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. Only someone in the Lord. Verse 40, but in my opinion, she will be happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Many of you thought we would not get to verse 40 this quickly. Amen? (laughs) So if a wife's husband dies, questions, questions that they had, What happens now? Paul says, she can remarry, but only in the Lord, meaning she needs to marry another believer. But she is free from her first marriage covenant. Seems obvious, uh, but once again, they had not been taught clearly or needed to be taught um, more so they could understand it better. Um, So Paul, once again, makes the case that she will be happier, however, if she remains a widow. Now remember, this is important. Keep the context in mind. You'd well, she's a widow, and she doesn't have a prominent place in the community. She may not be able to get a job. How's she going to feed herself? Ah, that's very true. Widows in the first century were in bad shape. They would probably die because they didn't have access to a job, most likely, unless it was prostitution or something to that effect. They didn't have access to anything. And widows who had no one to take care of them would die. Enter the gospel. The church has been instructed by the apostles, by God, by Christ, to take care of the widows. Once again, a clear difference in the Christian faith. And so a widow who was a believer, who had no one to take care of them, guess who took care of them? The church took care of them. So the widow was not driven to go get married in order to have things taken care of because the church would take care of that. But if she still burned with sexual desire, Paul says, you should go get married. There's nothing wrong with that. Just marry a believer. And then in the closing, when Paul says, I too have the Spirit of God, he is once again reasserting His apostolic authority, meaning that he is speaking as one who has been inspired. Now, the fact that I did that in 38 minutes, if you're not impressed, that is only (laughs) because you hadn't been here often, and you have not looked at the massive amounts of study notes on chapter (laughs) 7. There's a tremendous amount there. And you're thinking, well, thank you, Jason. That was neat. Um, But so what? (laughs) I appreciate what you taught today. But what do I take away from this? How do we take this clearly historical teaching in a historical context and apply it to today? There's a universal truth here. There's universal truth that's available to us today. After understanding the original context, there's a universal truth for us. And what are they? I'm going to give you some very quick applications. Number one, if you are married or want to be married, then great. That's great. Great. It's not simple to want that, and it's not simple to pursue that. You should. It's a wonderful thing. Number two, if you are single and want to stay single, then great. You'll have more money. Amen? (laughs) Number three, sex drives are natural, and they are from the Lord. And marriage is God's design to fulfill that desire. Students, there is nothing wrong with sex. It's created by our God for your pleasure, to create children, and for the glory of God. But the way you fulfill that is in a marriage. And outside of marriage, it will completely destroy you. Just look at our society. Also, notice there are no instructions in 1 Corinthians 7 for men marrying men or women marrying women because, as he already said in chapter 6, homosexuality is wrong. Anytime you hear on TV that the New Testament doesn't say anything about it, they haven't read the New Testament. It's clear. Sex is a wonderful thing. Parents, don't quit talking about sex. Don't treat that as a taboo subject and not train your children in it. Understand what this is, what the purpose of it is, what the Bible has to say about it. Don't ignore it or they will find an alternative way to understand and find out about it. And I guarantee you that one will not carry a biblical worldview of it. The Bible teaches it. Marriage is the right place to have sex. And any sexual activity outside It will destroy you. Number four, if you are single but burn with passion, get married. (laughs) I thought there'd be more amens on that. (laughs) If you burn with sexual passion and you're single, go find a spouse. That's what Paul said. There's nothing wrong with that. Number five, once married, your bodies belong to each other in that marriage. Earth-shattering for a first-century woman. Sex should happen often, if physically able, as an expression of love, and to fulfill the sexual desires of each other, because sex is a gift from God, and it should be enjoyed in the context of a marriage. Number six, sex within the marriage helps defeat sexual temptation. Paul was clear on that. That's why he says don't withhold that from each other. It should happen often, as much as physically possible. It should happen because that's how you defeat sexual temptation in your life. And there was plenty of that in Corinth. There's a pretty good amount of it in America, too. But you are called to be holy, spouse. You're called to be holy. Men, we are called to be holy. Holy. Whether our desire is met to our expectation or not. We are not, because it's not met the way we think it should be met, allowed to commit sexual immorality. With what we do or with what we watch. Paul's clear on this. You are called to be holy as God is holy. And then, number seven, this world is passing away. Marriage, sex, and all the appointments of life, jobs, and status, and money are all temporary. Eternal things matter above and more than physical temporary things. So, whatever your situation or status or job, use every moment as a way to be a light in a dark world, showing the world that the gospel you believe is real and has transformed your life, and use your marriage to profile the gospel. How you treat your spouse is evidence of what you think about Jesus. And you would say, well, what is this gospel that you keep talking about? Whew, so glad you asked. The gospel presentation is clear from the scriptures. That you were born into sin, no one had to teach you how to sin. And if left to your own desires, sexual immorality would be on your doorsteps instantly. You sin naturally. And that sin separated you from a holy, holy, holy God. And yet, even in your sin, while you were rebelling against God, that God loved you, and he loved you so much that he sent Christ to the earth to live a life that you could never live. So then then take your punishment on the cross that you richly deserved, and for those who would trust Christ as their Savior, he would take their sin and we would get his righteousness. And that righteousness makes us right with the Father and brings us back in the perfect unity. Meaning, no longer does God the Father see my sin or to see my failures. I'm 45 years old. If I live to be 90, I'm going to fail millions of more times. But in all those failures, as a Christian, God does not see my sin. He sees Christ's blood. And that is such good news to me. You say, well, how do, I, how do I get this? How do I find this? Well, let's just, do I re- repeat a prayer? Do I, do I need to take someone's hand and say a certain amount of words? Well, the Bible wouldn't agree with that. Although you could get saved that way. I did. But here's what the Bible says. Repent and believe. Repent means to look at your life and say, I don't want to live like this anymore. This is not what I want. My heart has been quickened by the Holy Spirit. I don't desire this anymore. And I look to you, Christ, as my Savior. I repent and I believe. I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. People say, well, if I do that, how do I know I'm a believer? Because your life will never be the same again. That's the gospel. As Keith comes, may we do some worship here Don't neglect the teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with regards to your marriage. There's weight there. There's weight there. May the marriages of the people at Sovereign Life Fellowship be different than the one out in the community. And may those of you who are single, may you live differently because of being a Christian than those who are not. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Let us pray. God, I pray, Lord, this uh, difficult chapter, Lord, a lot there. It's hard for us being, a by and large, a group of people who grew up in the church and have heard much of this. It's hard for us to really get our minds wrapped around these Corinthians, Lord. But I pray, God, that our Sunday School DNA will not make this chapter way less for us, but that we will see the high place that you put marriage and the high place that you put being single. And Lord, may it make application to our hearts. May our marriages look different in this culture. And may those who are single look different in this culture. And when we are asked why, may we be quick talk about the gospel. We love you, Jesus. It's your name we pray.